Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the Peter King Podcast. This is the season opening Peter King Podcast. We're going to have two interesting guests. We have Al Michaels on the eve of his 36th season doing NFL games. We'll talk about everything. And particularly, we're going to talk about Mike Tirico taking a few of his games. Al, very willing to do that this year. And we're going to talk about the new stadium in Al's hometown of Los Angeles. So stay tuned for that. And I'm also going to be joined this week in the week that the Kansas City Chiefs begin their defense of their Super Bowl championship. Tyron Matthews, safety team leader for the world champion Kansas City Chiefs. Before you hear from them, just a few thoughts on my ill-fated picks. And I say ill-fated because Yeah, I've been doing this for 36 years, and I've picked it right. I picked the Super Bowl correct twice in 36 years. So I wouldn't take much of what I say with – I wouldn't take any of it to Vegas or wherever you do your your gambling. But I'll tell you why I made the pick. I picked a Baltimore-Tampa Super Bowl. Uh, I picked Tampa winning the Super Bowl in Tampa, which would be a first – Uh, in the 55-year history of the Super Bowl, a home team winning on its home field. But I'm going to tell you a little bit about why I made that pick. And I think if you've been reading me this summer, particularly on my trip to Tampa, you saw how Tom Brady was fitting in in Tampa. But I, you know, basically, here's the way I sort of view making picks like this at the start of a season. Um, if I, if you ask me right now, who's the best team in football, I would say Kansas city and they've got 20 of 22 starters back, 20 of 21, uh, coaches back. Uh, they've got the best player in football, in my opinion, Patrick Mahomes. But I think one of the things that you notice is, I mean, it's 15 consecutive years without a repeat winner, um, a repeat Super Bowl winner. So that's one part of it. I think the other part is that, you know, on September 8th, as I record this, the Tuesday before the start of the regular season, I can't think of a single year, even in the great New England season of 2007, where they went 16-0 and in the regular season. I can't think of one season and one team where it looked the same on February 8th as it did on September 8th. So what's going to happen? I don't know. But I'll give you three quick reasons why I like Tampa. Number one, I think 
Brady gives them an efficient quarterback, which they just didn't have last year. You know, I used a note in my column this week that Tampa Bay won seven games last year while turning it over 41 times. The last team to turn it over that many times or more in the NFL was the Cleveland Browns three years ago. And the Browns went 0-16 that year. So, you know, I think there's got to be something there to be turning it over two and a half times a game and still winning seven games. You know, and all you have to do is look at the last two games of the year last year when Tampa Bay uh, should have beaten both Houston and Atlanta, but Jameis Winston threw six interceptions. So I think that's one of the reasons why I'm bullish. And, and, you know, and Brady coming back, obviously, so much more efficient quarterback. But you look at the, at the cast around Brady and the very young cast on defense. Um, and I think particularly you know, when I look at the, at the cast top to bottom, the receiver group, tight end group, even running backs now with the addition of Leonard Fournette, uh, I just think this is going to be the best set of offensive skill players that Tom Brady's ever played with. And I include 2007 with that, uh, with, with Randy Moss uh, in New England. Top to bottom, this group is better. Um, one other thing about Tampa that the thing that I think normally would probably worry me quite a bit is that other than Rob Gronkowski, they don't have, and Brady, obviously, they don't have people who've been down the long road and gone and and won multiple championships before. I would think that's a little bit worrisome, but I also think that, you know, Brady is the rising tide that lifts all boats. And uh, I don't think that's going to be a huge factor in this season. I think what could be a difficult factor is that you know, the Bucks, even if they make the playoffs, may have to make it as a wild card and then could, to get to the Super Bowl, could have to win three road games, which obviously is going to be really, would be really difficult. The Giants have done it twice, but you can't really, well, the Giants won one home game the one year against the Patriots, but uh, they have done it. Um, Pittsburgh has done it, but it's it's very, very difficult to do, obviously. So, I would, I guess, I would just say that uh, that this is a this is a pick of a gut feeling, and I just think Tampa is going to be a really good team and a force to be reckoned with this year. Two other quick things about my picks: Baltimore winning the AFC. Um, I think that you have to look at the entire um, landscape. First of all, Baltimore has a much easier, relatively speaking, schedule than, let's say, Kansas City. And Baltimore has uh, ranked by 2019 schedule the easiest schedule of foes in 2020 in the NFL. After they go and after they go to Houston in Week Two, they do not have a long road trip. Their longest road trip is a 70-minute flight uh, to Indianapolis. So. I think Baltimore is in good shape. And obviously, I think everybody would say, boy, you know, we really got to see Lamar Jackson do it. Um, and there's no denying he's played poorly in two postseason games. So I think that, and I think he will be better. But I also think one of the things about Baltimore 
in drafting J.K. Dobbins in the second round this year, the Ohio State running back, they are even deeper uh, to supplement what was uh, the best running game in football last year by uh, by yardage. So I think they're going to be good enough so that all of the pressure does not have to go on Jackson's shoulders. One other thing. So I ended up picking Seattle over San Francisco in the NFC West. And probably of anything, any of my predictions uh, this week in my column in Football Morning in America, that's the one that seemed to hit the biggest nerve and why would I do that and all that. Um, I'm just a big believer in Russell Wilson, and I'm a bigger believer in Wilson than I am right now in Jimmy Garoppolo. I think Garoppolo has some questions to answer. And look, you know, you can't have it both ways. Lamar Jackson has playoff questions to answer too. But Garoppolo last year um, in the postseason had some very shaky moments. And so, look, is San Francisco's roster 1-53 to better than Seattle's? I think so. But I think still, and there might not be one by the end of the year, but right now to start the year, there's a big gap at quarterback, and I'm going with Russell Wilson. Plus, I think if you look at the games they played last year, uh, so, so close, you know, particularly the, you know, the Monday night game was such a, such a close game that the pass interference that wasn't called in the, in the second game, you know, obviously was a, uh, was a big factor in that game. So look, I think these are two very, very close teams, great rivalry. It's taken over to me anyway, from Pittsburgh, Baltimore as the best rivalry in football. Love those games. They're so much fun to watch. Uh, And I think they'll have two great ones this year. So we'll see. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. New episodes drop Thursdays. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. But listen, uh, I appreciate you reading me at Football Morning in America and watching uh, uh, watching the NFL this year and following my podcast, the Peter King Podcast, uh, as you do. Much appreciated. Uh, let's get to our interview with Al Michaels. I spoke to him the other day. Um, he was at his home in Los Angeles. And I have to say he's a lot happier that the balance of power in the NFL, to some degree, has shifted west cut out a lot of those East Coast road trips for Al Michaels. Here's Al. 
Back on the Peter King podcast, so happy to be joined by Al Michaels, um, who is in his 900th year of doing NFL games on television. And Al, you know, we're going to talk about this at some point, but in a very company man-ish kind of way, I will say that you're 75 years old, you have not lost a mile per hour on your fastball, and yet this year your role is going to be changing. So let's start off before we get into... Uh, the big Thursday night game this week, the opener, the big Sunday night game in L.A., which is kind of a baby of yours. Let's talk for a moment about uh, Mike Tirico doing some Sunday games uh, and you being able to have a more reasonable life as the season goes on. Well, Peter, I've been involved in the process, and I think it's great. It's great for Mike, and it's great for me. I mean, this is, you know, it seems like year 900, but it's 35, which is pretty amazing to me when I look back to 35 years of doing the NFL since 1986. And uh, what would, I wouldn't say wear me down, but I mean, I live in Los Angeles and throughout the course of uh, recent history, uh, I mean, LA didn't have a team for over 20 years. Uh, the 49ers were, were good and then bad. So we didn't see them very often. And uh, my schedule would, would often compel me to go cross country six, seven, eight weeks in a row. Uh, this year, And would you, little, would you go home after each one of those? I would try to, I mean, once in a while I'd stay back East, but you know, I'm, I've always been kind of a homebody and the families, the kids are growing up at that point. Uh, and then the grandkids are coming along. So I didn't want to get home. Uh, I, I would normally, I, w- I wouldn't be like a team that would have back to back East coast games and stay back there. I yeah. do it maybe once, but right now, I mean, I think it's great. You know, we brought Mike in in 2016 after he had done, you know, 10 years on Monday night and I had done the prior 20. And uh, we thought we were going to wind up with Thursday night football. So we had a uh, half a package in 16 and 17. I did the Thursday games in 16. Mike did them in 17. Then Fox came in and got the package. So Mike came over uh, partially to, you know, be a part of, of the NFL. But uh, it wasn't available at that particular point because of uh, of the rights negotiations. So I think right now for me, this works out perfectly. Mike comes in, he does the third week this season, which is Green Bay at New Orleans. Then I'm back for uh, six, seven weeks. Then Mike does Thanksgiving and the Sunday after Thanksgiving and maybe a, a game or two down the line. We have two wild card games. So as it, uh, it turns out, Peter. I think we have uh, counting uh, the, the wild card games and, and well, we don't have preseason obviously this year, but there's something like, you know, 21, 22 games of which I'll do roughly 17. So that's a big part of the package. And I know that, you know, that one of the guys that I've always idolized was Vin Scully and Vinny and I talked a little bit about, you know, Vinny went to, he was 88 years old. That's not going to be me. Trust me. Uh, but Vinny was, was doing the Dodgers. He did it for 67 years. And he talked about, you know, a number of years ago, cutting back how refreshed he felt. And we had a discussion about that. And I, at some point, Peter, I knew there had to come a time where, you know, I love what I do too much. Uh, I don't want to step away. Uh, whatever chronological age I am in my brain, I'm like 22. I still got a bunch of rascal in me, as you know. And um, uh, this, I think this is a great thing because I'm doing most of the games, be refreshed and uh, keep it going as long as I can. You know what is kind of interesting about your world? And uh, you mentioned Vin Scully, and I always found it very interesting that 
you could listen to a Dodger game or watch a Dodger game that he was doing when he was 83, 84, 85 years old. And you say to yourself, how in the world can he still, it's one thing sounding good, but still being good. Okay. And I know from my perspective, I sometimes find myself, I'll grasp for a word. Okay. Mm -hmm. That I think 30 years ago, I would never have to grasp for a <laughs> word, you know? And so <clears throat> my wife and I do the New York Times crossword every day, sometimes successfully, some not. But, and my mother used to watch Jeopardy. My mother had every marble she was born with until she died at 80. And I always used to think, that's my mother doing crossword puzzles. That's my mother watching Jeopardy every single day. So what do you attribute your acuity to at, at the age of 75 that makes you sound like you're 53? Well, I'd like to say it's brain food, but I think, you know, Peter, I've never had a vegetable in my life. So yeah, maybe yeah. that maybe that maybe that has something to do with it. I mean, I've been a meat and potatoes guy and I like fish and chicken and and fruit and all of that. But I've never had a vegetable. But I think a lot of it is um, being interested in what you do. And I'm, I'm one of the very luckiest people on the face of the earth because I dreamed about doing this when I was a child. And my father walked me into Ebbets Field when I was six years old. And that's the first thing I remember in life. Oh, my God, look at how, how beautiful this place looked. And Jackie Robinson was playing in that game. I and mean, that's how long ago it was. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I want to be here every day. So I got a job that took me there every day eventually. Uh, and I got in for free, which was the icing on the cake. And I've always I've always loved sports and I still do. And I get excited, you know, just watching it and, and thinking about uh, the strategy that really, you know, what really turns me on about, you know, any sport is when it comes down to the end and you're wondering what each team is going to do. And I've still been fascinated by it. I was just watching, you know, the NBA the other night and the same thing. You get down to the end of the game and the guys are taking their timeouts and I'm trying to figure out what, what each is, is doing. So I think there's an engagement. Um, I know that another one of the guys that I idolized growing up was Kurt Gowdy, who I actually got to work with on the World Series uh, and the Olympics uh, in, in, the, in the 70s and in the 80s. And I'll never forget, Kurt told me when I was young, he said, listen, you're, you're going you're gonna to do great. He said, don't get jaded. And I that resonated with me at that time, and it still does. I see some people in this business who are moaning about certain things. And I'm going, really? I mean, this is one of the great jobs in the history of mankind. What are you <laughs> moaning about? So I never let myself, you know, I hear those words from Gowdy still resonating. Don't get jaded. And fortunately, I never have. I'm still as interested in in sports as I've ever been, you know, we're on the cusp of another football season. And it's, it's great to immerse yourself in this and, and get going. And, you know, and we, of course it gets manifested on national television. So I'm lucky too, in that I'm on a show that uh, is watched by millions of people. It's the number one show on television. I can't forget that either. So, I mean, uh, I got the golden ring, Peter. And I think that has a lot to do with how I feel, you know, mentally and emotionally. Yeah. Um, Al, this is we're we're headed into a pretty strange year, um, you know, both in America and uh, and obviously in football. 
So what has struck you as you've prepared for this year, and it'll kick off Thursday night this week uh, in uh, Kansas City, with Houston at Kansas City, then you'll do Dallas at the Rams to open the new SoFi Stadium. So what strikes you about how different this year is going to be for you and for the the telecasts that all people are going to watch on TV? Several things, Peter. Obviously, we're in, uh, we're in a very unusual time in the recent history of this country. We know everything that's going on. I mean, you've got the you've got the the racial situation, and you have a pandemic. I mean, on top of each other. So obviously, that has everybody concerned on any number of levels. On a football only level, uh, no preseason uh, training camp, the likes of which we've never seen. So I think when we get to the season, I'm going to be curious to see what the quality of play is like. Without any training camp, I think one of the more interesting things is going to be uh, how this plays out, how we, how, um, uh, what the quality of play will be like. Um, will there be more full starts? Will there be more penalties? Exactly what? In terms of television, I wish we would have had a, um, a preseason. And normally, I don't care whether we do a preseason game or not. Those are very hard to do, and they don't—they really don't mean very much, except to the to the coaches. But in this particular circumstance, we're going to have a number of people who are going to be working remotely. It's a different world right now, and not everybody is going to be in the uh, in the in the trucks on site. A lot of people will be back in Connecticut and other places. So. We'll be able to do it. I think what we're going to miss, though, is the uh, camaraderie, seeing all of our people. You know, we, we've got a great core group of people that do Sunday night football and have for years, and it's been a lot of fun just every every weekend getting together with them physically and seeing them and talking to them and, and knowing where they're coming from. So um, we don't have that anymore. I think we're prepared to go. We're ready to go. I think we're going to have a little bit of a trial and error situation here early in the season. You've got, you know, no fans in Los Angeles. About a quarter of the fans will be in Kansas City. You're going to have enhanced audio, uh, which is going to be brought in, you know, through, through, through the league and uh, in conjunction with us. So there's a lot of mystery out there right now. And I think, I think Chris and I and Michelle, I think on opening night, we, what we want to do is start slowly. Don't go to a place where we haven't been before and just kind of understand, uh, hey, look, let's, you know, let's come out of the gate. We don't need to take the lead, you know, down the backstretch before we, we hit the turn and, uh, and get our get our sea legs under us. Uh, if that's a, a phrase I can use, get your land legs, your sea legs, whatever legs we want to have under us and, and then go from there. How will game preparation change? You know, let's talk about the Thursday night game. I would assume that you will not be with either Andy Reid or Bill O'Brien in person before the game or with any of the players. So how will all of that change? Well, we live in the Zoom world, as you know, um, and that's where we are. And we can't have, a, you know, have the same meetings that we had. Uh, that's going to be... Oh, should I say harmful? I mean, that may be overstating it, Peter, because we're going to at least have discussions with these people. But through the years, um, getting to know the coaches and getting to know the players, the veteran players who've been there, we've been with a lot. And, you know, you can 
in a one-to-one -one situation, I think, you know, get them to be maybe more expansive and expressive, kid around with them, have fun with them. Uh, there's a trust that develops. So, you know, when you're on a, a, a Zoom call, maybe it's different. Maybe uh, they don't feel as comfortable as in my field. If you're in a room, I don't know. Uh, but I do know we're going to miss that part of it. There's no question about that. We can do our preparation apart from that, you know, the, to read what we can and talk on the phone with people and, and keep up to date in other ways is going to be very similar to what it's been. But what I'm going to miss is that, you know, that one-to-one, -one, that camaraderie, that feeling, you know, I mean, we were in Cleveland last year and we had uh, OBJ and Jarvis Landry in the room at the same time. And they played off each other and we had a lot of fun. It was great. And they said things, you know, that were very, that, that gave us uh, uh, things we could talk about on the telecast and ex ex expound upon. Uh, and I think the viewers really enjoyed. We don't have that right now. This is kind of a one-to-one -one thing where we've got a bunch of us sitting uh, in front of our iPads and they're looking into a camera. So that's going to be a little bit different. And hopefully, Peter, as the season progresses, Maybe some of this will get better, you know, if we, if we get this thing under control of the COVID, obviously, and we do have the ability to um, to go back to some sense of normalcy. That would be terrific. You'll have fans at the game Thursday night, about 16,000 of them. You'll have no fans at the game Sunday night in Los Angeles. How different does that make doing a game? Well, in Kansas City, they, they will have about a quarter of the stadium uh, occupied, but they were going to be wearing masks. So this is going to be, it's going to be a different sound. And that sound will probably be embellished or maybe enhanced by what the league is going to do in conjunction with our, our audio folks. Um, it'll sound different. I think uh, I can only think of uh, when I started at a wide world of sports back in 1977, I was assigned to a, World Ski Flying Championship in Vickerson, Norway, where the temperature was minus 20. And, you know, guys are flying off the hill and you probably had 15 to 20,000 Norwegians, not only with, with masks and, and head coverings, but with gloves. And it was just the weirdest sound you ever heard, you know, coming from, from the stands. Uh, so I'm curious to see what that sounds like. In Los Angeles, you have no fans. And uh, I've told the story about, you know, I, I did the San Francisco Giants in the mid-70s, and the team was pretty bad. And uh, one night in August, we're playing the Padres, and each team is 25 games out of first place. And in the seventh inning, somebody would come by and hand me the, um, the sheet that had the attendance on it. And I looked at it one night, and I said, why don't I just tell you who's here? Mr. and Mrs. Jim <laughs> McAlpine have come in from Hill Valley. You know, the Falukian family have driven up from... San Jose in the car with the dog, but they left the windows open. So it, we had a little <laughs> fun with that. So this, I'm used to doing games without fans, but I think it's going to be similar to, you know, I've watched all of the NBA and the NHL, and I think they've done a really good job by making it sound and feel as if people are there. So hopefully uh, we'll have the same sort of success. So Al, you got to correct me on this, but I believe that you have never done an NFL game in Los Angeles. Is that right? I've never done an NFL game. Well, in the city of Los Angeles, I didn't do one until we the Rams came back and we did a, a playoff game 
in the Coliseum against Atlanta a couple of years ago. Right, right, right. And then last year. But but I went through a uh, – How many over- years then without doing a, a game in L.A.? Well, it, it from when I started in 86, and the Rams and the Raiders were both in town. But right. the Raiders didn't sell out. So in those years, you had the blackout. So the Monday night football schedule never had the Raiders – in a home game because it would have had a blackout in Los Angeles. Yeah. Now the Rams were here. I did do the Rams on a number of occasions in Anaheim stadium. So that was yeah. not within the city confines of Los Angeles. Yeah. So it wasn't until 2017 or 18 that uh, I, I went all those, all of those years without doing a game in my hometown, but here we are and uh, get to open up a great stadium on Sunday night. So, when you do this game at SoFi Stadium, how many miles from your house? It will be about nine. Okay. And uh, I'll be staying at the hotel with the boys uh, and girls the night before. So that's about 11 miles, Peter. Yeah. So it, you know, it, 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 if I want to drive, that's 60 cents a mile. So it's about $6.60. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious. A long time ago, four, five, six years ago, you were the first one who said, watch out for two teams in Los Angeles, not just one. What did you know and how did you know it? I knew the league wanted to get back to L.A. It's the number two market in the country behind New York. So clearly uh, there was um, uh, an, an emphasis on bringing Los Angeles back into the fold. Now, L.A. almost got back in uh, at the turn of the century in 2000 when they were going to expand and Houston wound up getting the team, LA didn't have a facility. So the whole thing with Los Angeles became, where are they going to play? The Coliseum, a lot of history, but it's a bit of a relic. Uh, the Rose Bowl, a lot of history, but that's a bit of a relic. Uh, it's not, neither is a modern stadium. So there were talks along the way about, you know, who's going to build what and when. And then along came Stan Kroenke. Uh, to, of course, the displeasure and disgust probably of the people in St. Louis because he took the team out of there. But Stan came up with the plan to build a stadium. And he had the resources to build the stadium. And now you're going to see that stadium on Sunday Night Football. So that made a gigantic difference. And then I think you and I talked about this a number of years ago when I said two teams could come here. One of the reasons I said that was that you look at the, the demographics, you look at the population. So in Southern California, California has 40 million people. And I'd say two thirds of those live in the Southern half of the state. So that's the base from which you can basically draw and greater Los Angeles probably has 15 million. Uh, I looked at that and then you and I talked about the fact that in 1958, before the NFL was the NFL, before football was remotely as popular as it is right now, when baseball was far more popular, when there were only 12 teams in the National Football League and television, you know, was black and white, basically. And the first time I went to the Coliseum uh, after we moved to Los Angeles, the Rams played the Bears and the crowd was 100,470. The year before they played the 49ers, they had over 102,000. That year, again, with the, of the, the Bears game, they drew 100,202 against the Baltimore Colts in December. SC and UCLA drawing like crazy. So there are football fans in Los Angeles. I mean, if that happens 60 years ago, you can't tell me with the population having exploded yeah. by 40 to 50 percent 
with you know a, a, an economy that is um, uh, bigger than most countries, just the state of California alone. You, you build a new stadium, you build a beautiful new stadium. I mean, look, you know, Charlotte and Nashville are minuscule in terms of population next to Los Angeles. They're able to do pretty well. So I had no doubt that if you built a, a stadium, it's like the Field of Dreams, they will come and they will they will come. Uh, this is very different, of course, this, this time around. You got this $5 billion stadium and no fans. Who could have ever predicted that? But down the line, uh, this is this stadium, I think, is a, a great gift to the city of L.A. You know this stadium now because obviously you know Stan Kroenke well and you followed the construction of the stadium. Uh, I wonder, when people see this stadium, what's, what's going to be impressive to them? What will hit them about this stadium? I think when you walk in, and I did the other day, I went to the Rams scrimmage on uh, a set week ago Saturday. And uh, it, it, I mean, the lines are just beautiful. It just, it looks royal, regal. I don't want it to sound like, you know, this is a, a museum. It's, it has the look to a degree of what, of, of Dallas. And Jerry Jones, as you know, is very instrumental in helping to forward this process. And, and he and Stan have, you know, I'm sure talked a lot about certain things that needed to be done. So, I mean, AT&T Stadium in Dallas is still an amazing facility, and this is an incredible facility. And I think the things that could have been embellished, you know, 11 or 12 years ago, but were not available uh, through construction or uh, other means, are now put into this stadium. Uh, they have an Oculus board that is unbelievable. Uh, you know, at, at AT&T, the the board is very high. If you're sitting in the upper deck. It, it's great. It's right in front of you. If you're sitting low, uh, you're kind of craning your neck to see it, as is the case in Atlanta, where they have the rim around the top. This one is almost directly across from you, and it's two-sided. So if you're sitting like in the lower bowl, you can look at one side of the screen, but the people upstairs can look at the other side of the screen. So it, it, it goes both ways. The colors are gorgeous. The stadium is is open on the ends. The air flows in. It's open when you walk in. They had to build it because of the airport proximity. They could only go, like I think, 190 feet above the ground. So the stadium itself is about 280 feet from bottom to top. So what did they have to do? They had to dig a hole 100 feet down. That's a 10-story building. And that's why I think it, they were behind schedule because it rained uh, that first winter. And it took them a little extra time to get the stadium built. But I think it just it feels big time is all I can say. I don't, you know, it's, um, it's breathtaking. I walked in there the other day and I think the players felt the same way when they came in because they were, they, well, they had their cell phones out and they're, they're, you know, panning and, and zooming and, and trying to capture as much of the stadium as they possibly could. Um, no, you know, it's a, it's a cliche, no stone unturned in this one. This is a stadium where I think Stan felt, uh, that he had one chance to build the stadium and he did. And Jerry, I had a very, a very interesting talk with Jerry Jones. We did the first pre, regular season game there in 2009. And Jerry built that stadium between 2007 and when it opened in, in, in 09, Peter. And remember, that was the, the middle of a, the, the meltdown. We had a, re, a major recession, major. And um, I remember the night before, Jerry had a little uh, party at the stadium before they opened it up. 
And I said to him, I said, Jerry, I said, over the last two years, didn't you wake up at night and say to yourself, I could have saved 50 million here or 75 million there. I mean, I walked into that stadium that night and I said, this is perfect. I mean, even the bowels of the stadium were unbelievable. The, the, the locker rooms and everything, all the things that they could have just glossed over a little bit. And Jerry said, and I guess it was the wildcatter in him. He just said, I had one chance to do it and I wasn't going to let it go by. I think Stan felt the same way here. And, you know, I, I don't know what the original cost of the stadium was, but whatever it is, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. But most of it has been borne by, uh, by Stan Kroenke, and he should be applauded for that. You know, when I think about football this year, I think about the difference in so many ways, you know, fans in the stands and all that. But one of the other ways I think about it is, because players have become so much more politically active. You know, you have Patrick Mahomes teaming with LeBron James uh, on a voting initiative for young people. And, and I, I just get the impression this is not going to go away. And in this offseason, there has been so much emphasis on players talking about it, players coming out. Look, you never heard... Uh, quarterbacks of a bygone era talk about the things that quarterbacks of this era and big stars of this era are talking about. How will that affect the game that you do on television? You know, look, obviously this is a gigantic issue, gigantic, and something that really needed, obviously, to come to the forefront. How it manifests itself uh, I don't know, with the kneeling or not kneeling during the anthem and certain other things that may take place. I do know that to deal with this is, I don't want to say long form, but longer form than inside the game. So inside the game, and we're in a visual medium, so we don't need to over-explain certain things. And if you have a pregame show or a halftime where you do have more room to explore and expound upon these things, that's one thing. But inside the game, I mean, one of the fears that every broadcaster lives with, Peter, is the fact that let's start something, and now you've got a flea flicker and a 40-yard touchdown pass and a penalty. Where do you go? You've started something. You're in the middle of it. What do you do with it? How do you come back into it? So there are certain things that will happen. We, we just kind of have to play this on, on, on the fly, see what happens. We will address and discuss as the news dictates. And it has to be allowed within the flow of the game. Because otherwise, so much of the audience will go, would you shut up? I want, I mean, I want, to, I want to see what's going on here. Right. So you have to be... You have to be uh, more than careful. You've got to understand where you are in, inside the framework of the game. And there are certain things, sure, we'd love to be able to expound upon, but you've got to find the room to do that. And that's why, you know, we, we can't be um, real sports on HBO or a show like that where you can take 10 minutes and discuss these things. We're inside the game and you can't, you know... <laughs> You can't get it down to eight seconds. You just yeah. can't. Or, or, or you're, you know, you're going to fall off the tightrope. Yeah. It's interesting. It, you know, probably I think I've had 
20 columns football morning in America since the pandemic started. And, and I have been trying to find the right balance between writing about the pandemic, uh, the weird draft, the weird free agency, uh, you know, social and racial issues, all of that stuff. And I find myself thinking about it so much. And then during the course of whatever week I'm writing, I just really try to reflect what's going on in the NFL, what people are talking about around the NFL, what is happening around the NFL, to the point that here it is right before the start of the season. And quite honestly, I haven't written nearly as much about football raw football as you would in a normal year. So I think everybody is going to, I don't want to say struggle with that, but everybody's going to try to figure out what exactly that balance is as we go along through the course of this season. You're right. Uh, And it's an ongoing situation. Uh, You know, I guess one of the differences, if this would have happened 25 years ago, it would have been very different. I mean, we have the proliferation of social media, which you and I both know sometimes is more like anti-social media. We have uh, incredible polarization in this country. We've got people screaming at each other left and right, either orally or, you know, through Twitter or whatever other means they want. Um, that part of it is is distressing to me because, I mean, here we are. I mean, what what is this thing? We're on the, you know, I don't want to sound philosophical or spiritual i'm really not but i mean we're on the earth for such a short period of time and here we are beating the hell out of each other so i I hear i know exactly what you're saying and i think we're all in that same boat of what what no matter what you do you can upset a, a segment and you don't know what it is but i just feel that in today's world you know if you want to um be judged by Twitter and you want to go on Twitter and find out what people think you're out of your mind. I think anybody in the public eye in any way, and, and Peter, you know, you, you are, there's no question about it. Anybody on television is, and if you're looking for kudos, you're going to the wrong place because they're just going to beat the hell out of you. So you don't do that. And I think you just have to, you know, let your heart and your brain take you where you need to be. And God knows where that is these days, Peter. Yeah. I want to end by actually asking you two questions about football. Um, Wow. (laughs) I mean, as I sort of look at this season, I'm not sure I ever remember a team that enters a season like the Kansas City Chiefs are in this way. 20 of 22 starters on offense and defense are back. 20 of 21 coaches, obviously, including Andy Reid, is back. And so this is just the definition of continuity in a, uh, in a very, very difficult to, re- to retain continuity era of sports. What do you see when you look at the Kansas City Chiefs? Well, I see a team that obviously was great last year. I see a team that seems to have it all together, that's been able to sign the key guys that, you know, signs Mahomes to a half a billion dollar deal, whatever it is, that Sammy Watkins is going to take a little less money uh, to play there because he wants to be part of of what they have going there. 
But, you know, Peter, you've been around the league a long time, and you know as well as I do, they're the Super Bowl champions. But, boy, when you're down 24 to nothing in a divisional game, yeah. you don't you don't look like you're going to be the Super Bowl champions. When Patrick Mahomes goes down and has to be helped off the field in Denver in the middle of the season, you don't look like the Super Bowl champions. When you fall behind in the Super Bowl, you don't look like the Super you're Bowl. You're down champions. by ten with with eight minutes to go. You're down by ten. You're <laughs> you're down in every. I mean, they were the you know it's a cliche the comeback kids. So, think of how close they were to not being the Super Bowl champions. If the Texans don't run a fake punt from deep in their own territory <laughs> and get stopped and turn all the momentum in that game the other way, and yeah. then Kansas City has the lead by halftime. We're not having this discussion right now. So, but this is why I think we love sports and why I love the NFL, because you can say, you know what? Look, um, they are the champs, but look at all the things that had to happen. Yeah. Now you're asking it to, to happen again? Maybe. I don't know. They do seem, you know, every year, I think we, we look at a team that has success, that's able to keep most of the parts together, and, and anoint them as the uh, the likely champions. We also look at teams that came on uh, last year s- strong at the end and, and maybe added some key parts, and, and they're going to be the Super Bowl champions. And then there are always the outliers who come out of nowhere and wind up getting into the playoffs and maybe advancing deep into the playoffs. That's why we love it. But you so know, who, who is you, that? You, who is... You, you, you know, you, you and I both know Kansas City, yeah, they look like they've got everything going, but there are 32 teams. It's hard. It's hard. And and I think it's been 15 seasons now since anybody's repeated. So uh, there's that. But who is that team, Al? As you look at the landscape, as far as being a cliche, if you were to ask me who's that team, I'd probably say Tampa. And yeah. for m- many more reasons than Tom Brady. But do you have a team that you like that America might go, hmm, interesting? Well, I think, you know, Tampa is the first that came to my mind when you broached this subject uh, a couple of seconds ago. Tampa is also the most, maybe one of the most fascinating teams to watch this year because not only because of Brady, but who they have and Arians, you know, is a, he's, he's a lot of fun to watch and, uh, does a great job, and Gronkowski comes, and now they get four nets. So, I mean, they've got a lot of good things happening down there, very fascinating things happening in Tampa. Um, I keep looking at Arizona for some reason. I don't, you know, maybe the second year with Murray, yeah. and, and I know they've got Hopkins now, and, you know, the running back situation appears to be okay. Really, I really haven't done the forensics on that team because we don't have them on the, on the schedule right now unless we get flexed into them. But um, I like the way they came along at the end of the season. So that's a team that I think very few people would look at right now as a legitimate Super Bowl contender. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on them. Yeah, I think that's a very, they're a very interesting team. So uh, last thing, I mean, uh, with all of the sidebar things happening, uh, do you think those sidebar things overwhelm this season? Uh, do you think the, the, the year is going to be played to completion? Will we get to a point where we are just focused as we are most years on football first, second, and third? 
I don't know. I don't think anybody knows. Uh, we're all very hopeful. So far, so good. Uh, the protocol seemed to be working extremely well. I think a lot of people felt that we wouldn't even get this far. Uh, but here we are, and we're on the uh, the eve of the season. Everything looks pretty good right now. We don't know what happens when the weather gets colder again, and are there outbreaks in certain cities? Are there not? Uh, basketball and hockey have been able to, you know, work their way through it. Obviously, they're in a bubble. Baseball's had its fits and starts, but they seem to be heading for some sort of, you know, conclusion in uh, in October. You just hope it. Yeah, there, clearly, there are a ton of sidebars this year, maybe more so, Peter, than in any other season that we can remember. But I think when it comes to actually presenting the game, which we do on, on Sunday night, I think our philosophy is top to bottom. People have tuned in to watch the game. They want to watch the game. The game is on. They're, they're not tuning in to watch a lecture or uh, to, to be to, to have to hear us talking about things that they're not interested in. You know, you can almost hear the collective audience going, hey, shut up, you know, yeah, I wanna yeah. watch the game. <laughs> I understand yeah. that. And so I want, you know, I wanna be able to uh, present, I mean, we, we, we're gonna kick off uh, in Kansas City and people are gonna be excited that football is back and they can watch a football game. And uh, none of us can forget that. Al Michaels, it's been fun. I wish you well in your uh, 900th year doing the game. And, <laughs> you know, I just, I don't know what's going to happen. But that's part of what is fun about sports and about life. You know, I remember my one daughter after her last high school sports event, she was just so morose and melancholy. And uh, it was a field hockey game. And I said, would you rather have never experienced the great moments that you've experienced in the last four years, the fun, the great times you've had with everybody on your team? It's, you know, this is, this is part of life. Things end and you move on. But that's, I've been thinking about that a lot. We have no idea what's going to happen, but that's part of what's going to make the experience so much fun. And Peter, I'll leave you with this. Uh, you sum it up perfectly. We, we, Part of the reason we love football, we love sports, is we don't know what's going to happen. And, you know, through the years, I've been, uh, you know, a rascal, and I'll throw in the over-under and little asides, and it's kind of become a... It's, it's you get to do thing. that. You get I, to I do get, that legally now. I get to now. Yeah, there goes the rascal. The rascal is like part of, you know, 18 million people who are going to do the same thing. But I always had fun doing that. And then people always thought, a lot of people... Oh, Michael's must, he must bet on these games where I can tell who we bet on. You and I both know we have so much access to so many people, owners, GMs, personnel people, the players, the quarterbacks, name it. We read everything. We talk to the people in the media who cover. So we have this gigantic wealth of information. If you had, if I had to bet on a game, I'm no better than a guy throwing a dart at the wall. Totally Peter. agree. Yeah. And so that, and that's what's the that's the exciting part of it. And people are always saying to me, "Who do you like this week?" And I go, "I don't know. You know, uh, I throw a dart. Oh, come on, you have to." I, I said, "I know, but I don't know." And, and a lot of times, you know, Chris and I'll be driving out to the game and. We're talking about the game. This looks like Team A should win. Well, maybe the, we don't know, and that's why that's why we love sports. 
And yeah. you talk, I go back to when you asked me about, you know, how do I keep this, this thing up at, at, at my age? And part of it is that it's just, um, it's exciting. It's exciting. And, and, and sports provides drama and uh, that keeps you rolling. Al Michaels, thanks a lot for joining me. You bet, Peter. Anytime. My thanks to Al Michaels. Let's get now to Kansas City, where recently I had a chance to have a conversation with Tyron Matthew, who I thought was a gigantic part of the Chiefs winning their first Super Bowl in a half century in 2019. Here's Tyron Matthew. Back on the Peter King Podcast. So happy to be joined by Tyron Matthew, the Super Bowl champion safety of the Kansas City Chiefs. Tyron, that's got to sound good. You have a Super Bowl ring. What's your level of appreciation like for that? Well, Peter, it's good to see you. Um, I'm extremely appreciative. Um, you know, I'm, I'm appreciative uh, for, for the journey, you know, I've been on. Uh, more, I'm more grateful for the people that that really have stuck with me uh, throughout my journey, and, and even some of the people that I have met recently who have always watched from afar and who have always supported me. But now, you know, I have a chance to to really make history with those people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm forever grateful for all those things. As you sort of get ready to open your season against the Houston Texans and get ready to defend a Super Bowl championship. What do you think is particularly difficult about trying to win again? And and I I think to myself, you know, you could have lost the playoff game to Tennessee. Yeah. You could have lost the Super Bowl to San Francisco. You're down 10 points with eight minutes to go. So it's not like you're a total steamroller just killing everybody, but now – there's an even bigger X on your chest that everybody is going to be after. As you look at it right now, what is going to be really difficult on this journey you start against Houston? Well, I think first and foremost, you know, you you, you have to find ways to stay motivated. Uh, I think for us, you know, as a team, I think we realize overall that we could be so much better. And I know last year, you know, we, we were able to kind of pull together and win the championship. But I think overall, the, the commitment is that we can be so much better, whether that be offense or whether that be defensively or even special teams wise. And then beyond that, it's taking it a step further. You know, I think, you know, here in Kansas City, we're, we're, we love to come to work, especially for Coach Reed. And I think that bond, that commitment that we have with one another um, we have to keep that. And, you know, it's going to be very difficult because not all of us are going to be able to, you know, congregate or bond outside of the football facility, just with so much that's going on in the world. And, you know, everybody's trying to protect their families and also protect the interests of the team. So um, it's going to be very difficult, but I think we have some of the right pieces in place um, to where we can, we can do this thing. Uh, we got some good leaders as far as coaches. I think coaches are so, you know, underappreciated, you know, right? It's like, you know, if you got a great group of guys, then, you know, you could win a championship. But I think people tend to forget that, you know, coaches mean a lot to the football program. It's not always about having the best players on the team. And uh, I think we're very, very fortunate. I'll speak for me personally, you know, especially with Coach Spags and, you know, Coach Merritt, Brendan Daly, Matt House, all these guys with this great knowledge of football, 
um, you know, I'm appreciative for those guys as well because they they keep us committed. They keep us focused. They, they're constantly putting challenges in front of us um, and, and keeping us motivated. I want to go back and ask you one question about the Super Bowl. Um, with seven minutes and 13 seconds left in the fourth quarter, you guys were behind 20 to 10. You had a third and 15 at your own 35. Patrick was, uh, you know, getting chased all around. And this was not a normal third and 15. With their pass rush, I said, man, how, how are they going to convert this? And I wonder, take me into sort of when you're down 10, midway through the fourth quarter in the Super Bowl. Tell me what's going through your mind at that moment. And what do you remember about the 44-yard pass to Tyreek Hill? Well, I'd probably say, you know, just that that play in particular, um, you know, you have to have great trust between players and coaches. And, you know, I think Coach Reed allows that. You know, he allows for his players to to be fully embraced, um, to buy into what it is that, that he's selling. And I think moments like that are critical um, when you talk about the camaraderie, the chemistry between players and coaches, right? Because if the game's on the line and it's a critical situation, you know, certain players want, want to run certain plays, you know, and not all the time do you get quarterbacks, receivers, and coaches on the same play, on the same page, and they want to run the same play. And so, and, and even beyond that, you know, being down in the fourth quarter, um, I think that's Andy Reid, you know, that's what he's prepared us for. You know, I can remember coming into camp and I'm telling myself, I'm like, man, this is like one of the toughest. And I consider myself a pretty tough football player. I consider myself a football guy. So it's like I'm not running from anything football related. And But this was one of the toughest camps I've ever been a part of. You know, even practices throughout the season, you know, it's tough. It strains you uh, mentally, physically. But as I sat there in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl and even the couple games that we had before that, you know, I realized individually, and I'm sure my teammates as well, was that we were prepared for this moment, you know, through all the practices we had through all the situations we go through and not just coach Reed, you know, he opens the floor to, to many different guys, you know, to, to kind of teach us the game, whether that be situational football, you know, down by two up by two scores. And so I just felt like we were so prepared and we were so comfortable. And I know that that doesn't sound great being down, but we were extremely comfortable in that situation because once again, I feel like our coaches really, prepared us for that moment. Um, you know, we weren't fatigued, you know, even though we were down, we weren't thinking, you know, slowly. Um, I feel like we were still ourselves and that's the only way you can kind of pull through. You have to dig back, you know, reach back into those moments in preseason, you know, during the season, you know, when your coaches were challenging you when your coaches were expecting a lot out of you. And I think that's what we did. And I think that's how we were able to really pull through. What you just said reminds me so much of what Tom Brady told me after they had the massive comeback against Atlanta. They're down 28-3 in the Super Bowl. He brings them back. They end up winning the Super Bowl greatest comeback in history. Mm -hmm. And I said, Tom, in the fourth quarter and overtime of this game, you threw the ball consistently to Malcolm Mitchell 
a guy who basically was in the middle of his cup of coffee in the NFL. Okay. You know, he lasted a year, maybe a year plus. And Chris Hogan, who is a receiver, who he's a good receiver, but he's not a franchise receiver. And I said, time after time after time, you're throwing these little stop routes, these curls, and you're throwing the ball and it's right where it's supposed to be. And the guy stops and he turns around, the ball's right on him and all that stuff. I said, these are kind, these are new guys. Yeah. What is it? And he said, Peter, he said it's 111 practices. <laughs> and, you know, if I can't get into a great groove and communication with my guys after practicing with them and then staying after practice, probably 100 of those, you know, <laughs> I, I, you know, that's really, that's on me. We haven't worked hard enough. And that's what that play to Tyreek Hill reminded me of. You know, he knows exactly, you know, he's got to sprint at the safety. He's got to cut over. And Mahomes has to know exactly when he's going to throw it. And I, I mean, I think about that play a lot. I just think it was, it said so much about your team, about Mahomes, about Tyreek Hill. And how about this? Okay. So I know everybody is sad that Eric Bieniemy is not a head coach in the NFL. I get it. And, of course, he should be a head coach in the NFL. But how about this year when Patrick Mahomes comes to the sidelines? He's got Mike Kafka to bounce stuff off. He's yeah. got Eric, his quarterback coach. Eric Bieniemy is offensive coordinator. And, of course, he's got Andy Reid. That, to me, if somebody says, what do you need to repeat? I said, I'll take that brain trust, you know, <laughs> and like you're you're right with Spagnola. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's so interesting about it. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you about your career and your life. OK, so I think for people who don't know you and don't really know your story. OK, you were kicked off the LSU football team in 2012 due to violation of team rules, okay? And then you basically, uh, you were in and out of, it seems like you were kind of in and out of Les Miles' doghouse, you know, for a lot of that year. Then you entered the draft early. You didn't go as high in the draft as you wanted to go. And I, I wonder, I think you were 69th overall pick. Yes. And... At that time, I remember going to Cardinals training camp and all that. And I said to uh, Steve Keim, the GM, and Bruce Arians, I said, man, that's kind of a risky pick with Tyron Matthew. You know, a lot of people are staying away from him because of his off-field issues. So, but I think what's so interesting now is you basically walked into the Kansas City Chiefs and you became – easily one of the most important team leaders on the team. So I want you to take me back in your life and tell me why what was happening in 2012 didn't ruin your life and why you were able to make the comeback that you did. Well, yeah, I think, you know, just thinking back on it, Peter, you know, um, I was focused on things that, you know, I wasn't truly, you know, here to do. You know, and I think a lot of that comes with football. I think a lot of that comes with having great success, um, especially in Louisiana. You know, LSU is everything in Louisiana. And I think for a lot of kids, you can get to that point 
and you can feel like you've become who you've always wanted to become, not realizing you have so much more in you, so much more, you know, to look forward to. And I think for me, you know, after I had that experience of, you know, letting teammates down, you know, letting coaches down, uh, letting the community down, letting the state of Louisiana down, you know, I realized it was time for Tyron to just focus back on, you know, what it was that I love to do. And I think that was being a great teammate and, you know, just playing football and, and, and obviously serving my community. You know, I've always felt like I was a guy that, you know, was willing to, to do for others. And so, you know, I just tried my best to focus on that, um, especially then I think when I came into the NFL, you know, I had, you know, such great support. Right. I had guys that I can truly count on. Right. Like guys that I can look at and say, that's how it's done. You know, and, you know, whether that be Pat P, um, whether that be Patrick Larry, Peterson, Patrick yeah. Peterson, whether that be Larry Fitzgerald, you know, Darnell Dockett, uh, Calais Campbell. I was surrounded by some good men, some good dudes. And all those guys were different in their own right. And but but I, I tried my best to take something, you know, from all of those guys moving forward. Um, but I think ultimately it was about me just focusing on the things that, you know, in my mind, I was put on this earth to do. And, you know, that's to play football, serve my community and then really push my teammates to to be the best that they can be. And I didn't always realize the effect of that. Like, you know, obviously, when you get to the National Football League, people, you know, they emphasize the fact that you're the guy breaking down huddles and you're the guy speaking to the team. But I, I took a step back and I realized I've always been that guy, you know, that, that my teammates really listen to. And so it was for me to just, you know, put both of my hands in a pile. You know, I felt when I was, you know, 18, 19, I, I had one hand in the pile and then the other hand was kind of, you know, I wanted to enjoy the perks of, you know, being who I was becoming. And so for me, it was it was time to just kind of, you know, refocus on that. And I never really thought I was a bad kid. You know, even though I had some bad experiences, um, you know, uh, but it was definitely things that that I that I learned, um, things that I grew from, um, you know, even sitting across from Coach Miles and me and Coach Miles had a great relationship outside of the things that I was doing off the field. And to just see that hurt in his eyes. Now, this is a man who who didn't raise me. He, he you know, he's not my, my my family. You know, he he's a coach who's coming to my life, but he. You know, he sees something great in me that I still don't see in myself. And, you know, I think in that meeting, I realized that, wow, you know, I, I, I am a pretty good kid who was doing things the right way. And now look at me hurting people that were really trying to, you know, make me become, you know, who I really wanted to become. So uh, I think ultimately it was about me just focusing, you know, on the things that I love to do rather than, you know, things that I that I like to do. Did you worry back then that you might become a statistic like so many people who grew up hard uh, in New Orleans and, and all? I mean, look, and grew up hard anywhere. Did you worry you'd become a statistic? Absolutely. I think that really pushed me. I think that still pushes me to this day. Uh, I think I, because I understand that, you know, at any given moment, I can, you know, be back in New Orleans. I can be back in a situation that, you know, I've tried my best to grow from, you know, I can never forget, you know, when I got kicked out of school, it was so many people that, that, that I loved, that I grew up with, who just simply was trying to tell me to, to go get a regular job, to, to go do something else in my life, that football wouldn't work. 
And, you know, for me, it would they didn't they didn't realize, you know, the kind of love I had for the game. And I think that's a secret ingredient as well. You know, I think earlier I called myself a real football guy and I am. Um, and I think that's part of that is what saved me as well. My thanks to Tyron Matthew, Al Michaels, for their insightful commentary and thoughts. Um, looking forward to this season. It's going to be a, a different one, as everyone knows. have no idea what's going to happen. It's going to be as weird a year because we just have never entered a year with so many uncertain things uh, going on around the league and going around the nation. But you can tune into NBC on Thursday night to start your NFL season. It's Houston at Kansas City. Uh, we'll see how these teams do with a smaller crowd. And then you'll see how the teams do with no crowd. Sunday night, Dallas at the Los Angeles Rams on NBC. You'll see the new SoFi Stadium. That really ought to be pleasant. So we'll see you next week on the Peter King Podcast. And we'll see you throughout the season. Thanks for listening, everyone. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.